0: but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open and my lovely partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. Now, we do have a great chat room. There's always wonderful conversation going in there. And what's more, that pretty lady of mine just loves to talk to you. So, Ravinder, tell us about your chat room.
1: I do love chatting to our chat roomies. Uh, we have some great conversation, and I always learn from them. And hopefully they learn something from me, too. But it always adds an extra dimension to the subject matter on the air. We flesh it, flesh it out. In the, in the chat room and uh, provide some more insights to each other. So, yes, if you can, uh, come join us. Obviously not if you're driving or if your boss is looking over your shoulder. They don't tend to like that very much. But if you can, do come to com forward slash chat. Come join the conversation or just peek in on what we're chatting about and learn something along the way. Either way, we'd love to have you. All
0: right. In today's Spotlight... I would like to discuss the imposter syndrome or the idea that if others knew what you know about yourself that somehow this would diminish or even discredit you. This complex or syndrome also known as imposter phenomenon, fraud syndrome or the imposter experience is a psychological pattern in which people doubt their accomplishments and have a persistent, often internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. Many people hold themselves back from success because they fail to believe that they deserve it. As a result, they can develop methods to avoid attention and allow those feelings to govern their behavior. This complex often leads to compensation strategies designed to protect us from being exposed and these compensation strategies can literally be so self-sabotaging in the long run as to destroy our lives. For example, it may seem somewhat harmless to tell stories or lie a little to cover ourselves. However, these lies accumulate and can become dangerously entangled until one day, when exposed, the world sees that we have become what we feared, a liar and a fraud. Our defensive strategies may include such behaviors as avoidance, as in staying away from situations or people who might jeopardize our perceived exposure, minimizing our role in actions that may bring about praise, and so forth. Of course, not everyone who suffers from imposter syndrome really has anything to hide. They just feel like imposters. I know a successful defense attorney who feels like a fraud because he found law school too easy. As a result, he handles many cases no one else wants that are not high-profile, small-time drug dealers and the like. According to Eric Hamas, writing for Trello, first observed in a clinical setting by Dr. Pauline Clance in 1985, imposter syndrome triggers in people intense feelings that their achievements are undeserved and worry that they are likely to be exposed as a fraud. They often feel that any success in their lives can be attributed to pure luck or to the manipulation of other people's impressions. To some extent, and in certain circumstances, we may all at times feel a bit like imposters. Whenever we are called upon to do something we consider outside our so-called wheelhouse, the discomfort becomes obvious. So perhaps we're asked to speak at a PTA meeting about our success as apparent since our child is doing so well in school. However, we really feel that we don't deserve that much credit for their success, and thus we feel the twinges of the imposter syndrome. Or maybe if you're a female and have climbed the ladder of success, well, you wonder whether it is due to your charm rather than your abilities, or some quota for female leaders within the company that has really been the reason for your success. What are we to do about this feeling of guilt, this nagging sense described as imposter syndrome? Well, first, be honest. Be honest about yourself and your achievements. Avoid exaggeration and do not attempt to defend attacks that strike at your so-called weaknesses. If, for example, you obtained a college degree without finishing high school first, recognize that so have many other people. There is no reason to become defensive over this. Second, normalize the feeling. Understand that it is a state and not a trait. It is a bit akin to that feeling of anxiety one might get before a public address, just something very normal that many people feel. Bottom line, understand that fear and self-doubt haunt everyone from time to time. This does not make you a fraud. Your contributions to others is not in any way minimized by your feelings of doubt. As long as you're honest about who you are, you have nothing to hide. So unleash your potential and be all that you can be. Those are my thoughts anyway. What are yours, Ravinder?
1: You know, I think you've touched on one that affects everyone at some point in some aspect of their life, you know, where they feel like an imposter. It certainly has um, affected me at different times in my life. You know, I think it's just pure luck that I am where I am today. You know, if I hadn't have met you, I wouldn't have achieved a fraction of the stuff that I've done. It's just just the way it is. Um, you I know. see
0: that differently, but okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, but that's just biases coming into play. Um, you know, there is this idea of you don't, you're not as intelligent as those people around you. I've certainly felt that even though I can be around people that are supposed to be my peers, but then they can talk about something that I don't have a firm grasp of. And everyone else seems to be, you know, right there. So, you know, I've I've experienced that. Success as a parent, you know, our boys do wonderfully in school. Um, But I think all parents are aware how kids behave outside the house is very different to how they behave inside the house. So that one can have lots of parents feeling like imposters at some point, you know, when they've just had a screaming match with their child and the child's now acting like a perfect angel. (laughs) To friends and family and then success due to quotas that one uh, that one piqued my interest too because I've certainly had some of that as well so the imposter syndrome you know I think we all feel that way in some in some way at some time and just accepting the fact that it's normal that everyone has it somewhere that lots of people can pretend to be smarter or more intelligent or more People often don't talk up. You know, if you're in a group and there's a conversation going on that you don't quite follow or you don't quite have a handle on and everyone else seems to be following, nah, chances are, you you know, at least half the other people there are, are going to be just as lost as you are as well. At least that's what I tell myself anyway. So.
0: Well, you know, I think the bottom line is don't pretend. Just try and be as authentic as you can.
1: Absolutely. If, if you speak up, then others can speak up too. That's and true. then the world becomes a better place.
0: Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our show featured Dr. Richard Sidewick, and we discussed synesthesia. John wrote, great show with Sidewick. I don't think I would like to experience synesthesia. Alan wrote, I think that it's quite interesting that one can experience something akin to synesthesia during meditation. I get the LSD stuff, but the meditation surprised me. Cynthia wrote, love your radio show. Keep those great subjects and informed guests coming. I learned so much. Moving on, Jackie wrote, I have used your InterTalk programs to help with several problems in the past 20 years. I highly recommend InterTalk programs as they have been very helpful to me. And Gary wrote, I have purchased several of Eldon's books from Amazon and they are excellent. If you want to reach your best self, you have to explore his website and InterTalk CDs. It's the best way to help yourself and the world. I appreciate that, Gary. Thank you. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at Eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas, don't we, Ravinder? We
1: do indeed.
0: Now to today's show, Heavens on Earth, the scientific search for the afterlife, immortality, and utopia with author... Professor Michael Shermer. Now, Professor Shermer has been on this show with us before, but in the event that you missed that show, let me tell you a little about today's guest. Michael Shermer received his B.A. in Psychology from Pepperdine University, his M.A. in Experimental Psychology from California State University, Fullerton, and his Ph.D. in the History of Science from Claremont Graduate University. He has been a college professor since 1979, also teaching at Occidental College, Glendale College, and Claremont Graduate University, where he taught a transdisciplinary course for Ph.D. students on evolution, economics, and the brain. He is the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, a monthly columnist for Scientific American, a presidential fellow at Chapman University, And the author of a number of New York Times best-selling books, including Why People Believe Weird Things, Why Darwin Matters, The Believing Brain, The Moral Arc, and today's subject, Heavens on Earth. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Michael Shermer. We like to know three things on this show, Professor. Who's the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? To that end, please share with us what drives your passions and goals
2: oh well um professionally i'm um, the publisher of Skeptic magazine and I write for Scientific American and I teach a course on skepticism and uh, call it skepticism one o one so my thing is skepticism well it's science it's really it's critical thinking most broadly the application of science and reason to solving problems and explaining how the world works, everything from the physical and biological sciences to the social sciences and psychology. My training is psychology so most generally, I'm interested in human behavior, human action, what drives people, uh, what motivates people, how lives turn out, you know, why people believe the things that they believe, how they came to believe them and justify them, and, and so on. And then, I, of course, I have a commitment to the truth, so I'm interested also not just in, in why people believe the things that they do, but are the things actually true? Should they be believing those things? Should I be believing the things I believe? And, uh, you know, this is a never-ending journey, because we can't get to the absolute truth. We're not gods. So it's a, uh, you know, it's a stepwise process of uh, applying the scientific method and reason and logic and critical thinking to any and all claims and trying to figure out, uh, you know, how close to the truth we are. And then more (laughs) broadly still, um, I'm committed to um, creating a more moral and just world, you know, using these tools we have, and so the, my previous book from Heavens on Earth is called um, The Moral Arc, after uh, Dr. King's famous line, which he got from a 19th century preacher that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice, and what I show in that book is that it, there's no mystical forces driving civilization toward more justice and freedom and liberty and prosperity. It's... it's uh, entirely the result of our own uh, human actions, that is, things we do to make the world a little bit better place every day. And uh, sort of like your show, you know, it's just, uh, you know, we, uh, conversation and ideas is what's behind the actions people take, and uh, so that's that's what I'm driven to do.
0: Yeah, and for what it's worth, I love your work. I don't always agree with your conclusions, but you know that, hey, I... I I believe that the most important thing any and all of us can do is examine everything that's out there. And I found this book, Heavens on Earth, to be particularly rewarding. I want to compliment you on that. I really you. enjoyed your book. It is an excellent read. I found it as important um, a read for for atheists, theists, uh, agnostics alike. Um, I think it really is something that we all should be more aware of, and perhaps it serves that goal of yours that uh, we do have a a better society, uh, not for any reason contingent on anything other than, you know, moral behavior, just decency.
2: That's right. Um, It really comes down to, you know, individual acts of kindness and goodness uh, versus uh, rudeness or evil. Uh, and it, it comes down to you know what what you did uh, opening the door for somebody or or saying something nice to somebody and all the way up to international relations you know it's like it, it, it all comes down to just people interacting with other people um, and those those little tiny differences uh, can make all the difference in the world so in both my my books the moral arc and heavens on earth I I, I debunk the notion of utopia in fact I show that we aiming for utopia is dangerous it leads people to irrational ideas like eliminating those who are blocking our way to our perceived utopia which is what's behind a lot of genocides and, and pogroms and witch hunts and so on no we should be aiming instead of utopia protopia which is um, the idea of, just, uh, of incremental steps of progress just making tomorrow a little bit better than today and don't aim for perfection because there's no such thing uh, just just to try to make the world a little bit better place as defined by uh the flourishing of more people just the survival and flourishing and well-being of of conscious creatures like us and and other animals uh, other sentient beings um just not suffer so much and and flourish a little bit more and and you know it, it doesn't it, it just sounds like you got to be kidding me but no no it actually works and i show in the moral arc that you know, we've been doing this for centuries, and we're barely aware of it. That, that you know, life is better today than it's ever been, and it just doesn't seem like that to most people because we're not tuned into looking at long-term trends. We're tuned into short-term headlines, and uh, that distorts uh, how reality really works. Right.
0: Before we really dive into your book, I, I you know one of the one of the things that I hear sometimes from you know feedback uh, has to do with you know they see they see the skeptic you as a case in point as a cynic uh, as even poisonous if you will with regard to some uh, other value that they hold to be mutually exclusive from yours. Okay. Yeah take a moment and flesh out for our audience the difference between cynicism and skepticism will you please
2: sure uh, there's really no relationship at all it's just the words kind of sound alike so cynicism is uh, is a little bit like um the idea that um you know, it doesn't matter what we do that you know things are bad and getting worse a cynical someone who's cynical is uh, you know sort of pessimistic about the world a little bit like what I was talking about just a moment ago—that we, you know, we have this negativity bias where um, the natural inclination is to be pessimistic because it seems like life is bad and getting worse. If you watch the news, that's all you see, uh, forgetting that that's what the news is tasked to do. You know, no no news station ever covers a school with no school shootings. You know, here we are—we have a camera crew in front of this elementary school, and no one has shot anybody here today. And we'll be here for the next thousand days, and it won't happen. <laughs> that just never happens. So, you know, cynics, uh, you know, tend to see the the dark side of things, and, and there's reasons for that psychologically. Now, skeptics and skepticism is just a scientific way of thinking about the world. It's just uh, looking for the evidence for a, a particular claim and then accepting it or not based on the quality of the evidence or shading your degrees of confidence in the veracity of a claim based on how much evidence there is for it, the quality of the evidence, how good the arguments are, how, w- how well the claim fits in with the way we know the world works, and and so forth. So there's really no relationship. Skeptics are often thought to believe nothing. In fact, skeptics believe all sorts of things. <laughs> It'd be like saying scientists don't believe anything. No, scientists believe lots of things. Right. Yeah, it
0: okay. seems to me—I don't mean to cut you off, sir— it's okay. It, it seems to me rather paradoxical that uh, most of those folks, and I will say all, based on my own experience, but I, you know, exempt the fact that there may be somebody out there otherwise who jump immediately on Skeptic uh, Magazine, uh, your publication, which I subscribe to, by the way, oh, and or you know, your work, etc., and people of of your ilk, if if I can the use ilk. it in that sense. <laughs> Not
1: ilk. Oh
0: yeah. Well, okay. My
2: colleagues.
0: Your colleagues. There we go. Thanks for correcting me. Yeah, you're right. That that was a that was a bad one. Anyway, uh, that immediately jump on that. They're the true cynics, uh, unable to open their minds and unable to evaluate what it is that you're saying, coming to a judgment before the facts are even known to them. Do you find that to be true?
2: Um. Yes, of course, uh, lots of people do that and uh particularly if, if there's a political agenda or a religious uh, agenda or ideological or economic ideology agenda we all do that. So for example, uh there's this kind of meme going around now that uh in the last decade or so that conservatives hate science, liberals love science, you know. And this is not true. Actually, um conservatives are skeptical of certain scientific claims that bump up against their particular political um, uh, beliefs, but so do liberals. They do the same thing. Uh, so conservatives tend to be skeptical, say, of climate change, uh, evolution. Those are the two big ones there. But liberals are just as bad in distorting the science when it comes to vaccinations, um, nuclear power, uh, GMOs, um, you know, those are sort of the big three hot-button issues for liberals. And and they distort the science equally on both sides. In general surveys, people who self-identify as conservative, they, they love science as much as liberals do uh, in a, all other areas. You know, just sort of generally across the board, do you think science is, and technology is good for society? Yeah, absolutely. You know, 99% of conservatives go, yeah, Totally. Uh, except for this one thing, climate change, or this one thing, evolution. And liberals, same way, except for this one thing, nuclear power, whatever. So we all do this um, if it's something that uh, is precious to us, sort of um, a moral foundation in our beliefs of how we define ourselves. So say, for example, you're conservative, you define yourself as you know free market capitalism um, and freedom and you like small government and and you run into this claim about parts per million of CO two gas in the atmosphere is going to lead to global warming, therefore you know, we should pass draconian government restrictions on the economy and industry. You you don't hear the first part. You only hear the second part about what well, what was that about government restrictions? No, 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 I don't like that. Mm-hmm. And so from there the you know, it just gets distorted. Uh the science uh based on a very simple um, cognitive bias called the confirmation bias, where we look for and find confirming evidence for what we already believe, and we ignore the disconfirming evidence. And everybody does it. You know, liberals read the New York Times. Conservatives read the Wall Street Journal. You know, conservatives watch Fox News. Uh, liberals watch NPR, or listen to NPR, watch uh, PBS, and so on. I mean, we, everybody does this. You sort of pick the sources of knowledge that are going con- to confirm what you want to be true. Now, the fact that all of us do that is sort of an indictment of our species, but the thing about science is that you can't do that. Um, I mean, you, you may want to, as a scientist, only select the the experimental results that support your, your hypothesis. Yes, yes, we that that's true. Scienti- scientists are people, and they would like to do that. But their colleagues won't let them. I mean, in peer review and, um, and open peer commentary and debate, um, you can't do that. You'll be called out on it. So you have to be careful not to let yourself be subject to those things so it's a self-correcting process
0: and we're all guilty of it as you say we all have our built-in biases and sometimes we're blind to those biases even when we're aware of confirmation yeah. bias I, I i think it's important for everyone listening to our show to know that once upon a time you were quite a christian evangelist of sorts and uh When I spoke with you last, I was most impressed with our conversation and a comment you made at the end of the the conversation when I asked you simply, okay, how would you live your life differently if you were still, you know, that religious person than the kind of person that you are today as an, and I don't want to label you, but I believe you labeled yourself as an agnostic. So as an agnostic skeptic, what's the difference in how you would have lived your life today? Please share with us again, if you will, what that difference
2: is between an agnostic and an atheist
0: no, between how you would live your life today if you were still that Christian believer oh, oh, oh
3: okay. then
0: yeah
2: um well there there would be some differences I think uh, obviously I'd still be going to church if I was uh a Christian, and I'd I'd probably be evangelizing. I mean, I was an evangelical, and by definition, what evangelicals do is they evangelize. I mean, uh, that is, you go out and tell people about the the good word. I'd probably be doing debates. I do debates now, but instead of debating uh, theists as an atheist, I'd probably be on the other side. (laughs) Because, you know, I like being a public intellectual, I like engaging with people, and I like writing, so I'd probably be writing and debating uh, the topics from the other side. So in a way, I'm I'm pretty good at doing debate, public debates, cause, uh, on this these topics, because I used to believe. So I know the arguments and the mindset, and the worldview. So, um, but in terms of like how I treat people, I I'd like to think it it wouldn't be any different. Um, I mean, I I I think, and I think most Christians would agree, you should be nice to people. Just you should be good, just for goodness sake, and not not for any promise of a reward in the next world or for making God happy or. Or for pleasing the you know, the church uh, leaders, or or your pastor, or whatever. But just because it's the right thing to do. Uh, either way, whether there's a God or not, whether there's an afterlife or not, you, we should be nice to other people, it, just because. And, and and you can ground that in non-theistic uh, logic. That is, the principle of interchangeable perspectives. That is, how would you know the golden rule? How would you like to be treated? And just apply that to other people. Um, you know, just sort of a perspective change, perspective taking, Uh, from there much follows uh, in terms of how we should act toward other people based on how we would like to be treated. Uh, Because there's nothing special about me or the place I happen to be standing on just because I'm me and I'm standing there and you're not. Uh, You can't make that argument uh, with somebody else and expect them to take you seriously. So. You can do this without God or or without religion and still be a good person. And I this is what I try to do. So I don't think my world would be any different in that sense.
0: The character analysis is what I wanted. And that's one of the things that I admire about you, sir. We've got a break now. So we're speaking with Professor Michael Shermer about his work and book, Heavens on Earth. It's a great read. Get a copy. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Shermer. Dot com. That's Michael Schirmer is S-H-E-R-M-E-R.com. Now we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest on the subject of fighting the backfire effect. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do <laughs> do Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're
4: listening to Provocative Enlightenment
1: with
4: Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used Inner Talk. Vicki wrote, my hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your Inner Talk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor.
3: get what she came for. And she's buying a the stairway here. There's a sign on the wall, but she won't.
0: Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Michael Shermer about his work and book, Heavens on Earth. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at michaelshermer.com. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality and social behavior. So, we just played some of Stairway to Heaven" by Led Zeppelin. Please tell us, Professor, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are?
2: How did you know that was my favorite all time rock song? <laughs> I believe you told us <laughs> oh, oh, yes, that's right. I did well, uh I do think um it's touching a uh you know a deep longing people have to continue. In this life, that is to say, the the idea of the afterlife, it kind of comes naturally in the sense that we can't imagine not being alive because to imagine anything you have to be alive. Which is to say, if I say ima- imagine uh, being unconscious, how how can you imagine that? Because you have to be conscious to be imagine anything. So all you can think of is like, well, when I go to sleep, you know, it's just sort of lights out uh... upstairs except for my dreams or when i go under general anesthesia it completely lights out no dreams i just you know, lost time and no idea how long i was under people that are in comas have no idea how long they're they're out for and um so death is probably something like that it's just boom boom lights out and that, and that's it end of uh, existence so when people say well, where do you go after you die i say well same place you were before you were born uh, and they look at me like, well, but I wasn't anywhere before I was born. Right. That's that's it. You know, this is it. So as far as we know, I mean, I, I could be wrong. I mean, no one knows for sure. But um, as far as we know, the idea of the afterlife comes from this very fundamental cognitive awareness that um, I'm conscious and self-aware, and I can't imagine being anything other than this uh and the fact that so that i can't imagine it i can't imagine being dead it, it's impossible so all of the afterlife scenarios follow from that that somehow my consciousness continues in this other existence or this other plane and this also explains why there's so many different versions of heaven i mean heaven has a rich history that i uh reconstruct in heavens on earth uh and it's very interesting but but none of these histories are converging towards some um, more accurate description of what's out there in reality, like say the history of cosmology, converging toward better models of, of what the universe is really like. It's not like that with heaven. It's entirely dependent on where you happen to have be been born and, and raised, and what religion you're in, and what they believe over the millennia. You know, and and so you know, the, the ancient Jews, for example, did not believe in an afterlife. They just believed you go to shoals, S H O E L, this place. It just meant nothing. It's like what I just described. You don't go anywhere. You and, know, I
0: find. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. So I mean, um, you know, the, from there it gets it gets very interesting. Of uh, and and you know, the, the, the little Woody Allen line about how I don't want to live on through my work. I want to live on in my apartment. <laughs> well, that's that's what, how most of us feel. I mean, if you're severely depressed and you don't want to live anymore, I'm not talking about that. I'm just like you know, the average healthy happy person. They they want to continue. And and yet we see a, a death all around us, and all the every one of the hundred billion people that came before us, they're that, that have died. They've not come back. They're gone. So we can see it's real. And yet I can't conceive of myself not being alive. So what do I do with that? So most people construct an idea in their head of an afterlife. And this begins very early. Paul Bloom's research that I recount in the book at Yale University, he you know he has shows this little puppet show to these tiny kids. These are these are preschoolers. These are toddlers. Um, about you know an alligator munches this little mouse. Now where's the mouse? Well, they all think the mouse is still alive somewhere else. You know, his body is dead, but but he he continues his essence, his soul, his mouseness, beingness it continues somewhere. He misses his mom and he's lonely, he's scared and he's hungry. And you know they they impute these uh, essentialistic uh, notions to the mouse, the dead mouse, that he still continues. And and that that is we're sort of natural born dualists. We believe there's two substances: body and soul, brain and mind, corporeal and incorporeal, and something continues on. Now, what that is, you know, no the religions don't agree with each other. Um, you know, some just take Christianity for example. Some sects believe that it, you will be physically re- resurrected, like Jesus. You will be physically up in heaven. Well, what's up there? I mean, is it what? How old are you? You know, what body is up there, your 30-year-old body, your, in my case, my 63-year-old body? Um, and if it's my 30-year-old body, because that's the age Jesus was when he was resurrected, uh, what happens to the memories from the, my age 30 to age 63? Where do, do they go with the body? And Okay, no, 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 it's not the body, it's the soul. Yeah, okay, well, well, what's that? What is the soul? You know, it's the pattern of information that represents you, all your memories and stuff yeah okay that that sounds good but the my memories are always changing so which set of memories which snapshot of memories uh, you know go up there to heaven and so on so it gets more and more complicated the deeper you think about it
0: you know and it's something i think every parent has to deal with indeed that's where you open your book where did i come from you know and children are you know that that's one of the questions that they ask very early where did i come from you know where did you come from dad and, uh, and and as you say, I think it's uh, it's a shortcut, among other things, to just um, create a story that is easy for a child to understand, and then an entire ethic gets built as a result of that story. Yeah. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah. Uh, we're storytelling creatures, and the narrative uh, counts. We uh, oh, recon- yeah. reconstruct of our lives very much determines who we are and how we think about ourselves. And um, you know how lives turn out is a very interesting subject. This may be my next book. Is, is you know that not not just uh, I want to add talk about the role of chance and luck and contingency uh, to all the other formulaic uh, components like genes and upbringing and parents and so on. But more importantly, you know people look back on their lives and tell us they they construct a story a narrative of how it turned out like it was ined- inevitable or. And it was sort of this pathway I was destined to go on or whatever. And But that's all hindsight bias. You know, Had you done something else, had you gone to some other college instead of the one you went to, or you married this other person instead of the one you married, or you took up this career instead of that career, you, you would be telling a, a different story, but it would be equally deterministic. Like, see, it was destined for me to marry that person or whatever. And uh, so I, I think that very much shapes how we think about things.
0: Amen. All right. I, you know, I... <clears throat> Deepak Chopra endorsed your book, Uh, and I read the endorsement a couple of times, and I have to tell you that part of me sees it as a tongue-in-cheek remark. I mean, he said, I appreciate every evolutionary step skepticism takes toward openness. Heavens on Earth is an affirmation that other worldviews deserve respect and understanding. Good up to now. In this book, science may actually be catching up with the world's wisdom traditions, close quote. I have to ask you, is science catching up, in your view, to the world's wisdom traditions, and if so, how?
2: (laughs) Well, Deepak thinks that, of course, Uh, I I tend to think that uh, science is on its own journey uh, of understanding, and if it happens to match those of, say, the Buddha or, or somebody like that from... Uh, millennia ago, okay, fine. Uh, you know, introspection and the various meditative techniques that Buddhists use may get them some insight into, you know, how the world works. That's fine if that's the case. Uh, but but you know, I don't want to be committed to whatever the Buddha thought is right is probably right. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> so each, each, you know, instance has to be tested
0: well what we're on boot is of chopra then uh, you have engaged in a number of debates discussions i've watched some of them on youtube i encourage everybody to uh what's your version of immortality um and and do you do you agree with uh, chopra's
2: well um not in the sense of uh, that we return to to consciousness uh I mean, Deepak thinks you know consciousness is primary in the universe, and material existence is a, a secondary feature. I don't think so. The evidence points to the opposite of that. But if he's right and and I'm wrong, and it turns out that you know after the death of my body, my consciousness continues on someplace else, whatever that would mean, okay, I'm I'm all right with that. I I have no desire to check out early or 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 at all. <laughs> um, and if and if it ends up being some I can't imagine it, the Christian version of heaven being correct. But 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 if it is, um and my friends are there, the, you know, that I've lost Carl Sagan and Stephen Jay Gould and Isaac Asimov and you know and and my parents, all my parents are gone, um and you know if I saw them again, okay, that'd be great. Um so I'm not against any of this. Uh but what I focus on in the book especially is um scientific attempts to do this, you know, to cryonically cryonically freezing people or uploading your mind into the cloud, to continue on. This way, um, you know, these are really no better than than the various religious theories of the afterlife in terms of their like the likelihood of them coming true.
0: Interesting. I yeah, <clears throat> you know, we kind of touched on this just a little bit earlier, but we've had guests on this show that have You know, provided remarkable stories of, uh, you know, the afterlife, um, uh, situations where uh, NDEs have led to OBEs and doctors who, medical doctors who've come on and uh, like uh, Lermer and told us about events, you know, and the, the patient was out of the body; he was clinically oh, yeah. dead, but he described to me a coin that sat way up high. I had to get a ladder to see, but there it was, this old silver dollar covered with dust and and, and other such situations of that nature and Of course, we've had a number of n d e uh you know near death experience people uh discuss with us and, and and I and, and some of them I've just found totally incredulous. Um, you know <laughs> yeah. those claims that you know every NDE person comes back with an IQ over two hundred. You know right. and th- those kinds of things are just ludicrous. But but some of this they're, they're appealing. I think in part because we like to believe that. What are your thoughts on all of this, and where does the science stand on it?
2: Uh, well, scientists are pretty clear about this: that uh, near-death experiences are entirely in the brain, and they, don't, they do not represent uh, a stairway to heaven, a, a doorway to, to another dimension, or, or anything else like that. We know that the components of the near-death experience, such as floating out of your body, um, it can be replicated in the lab. You can do this through electrical stimulation of the temporal lobes of your brain, just a certain area just above your ears. If you electrically stimulate that, these are open-brain surgery patients mostly for epilepsy and they get their permission ahead of time to wake them up after they've uh, opened up the brain and and then tap around with electrodes and ask them what's going on. That's a way of mapping the brain. It's one way we know about how the brain works and which parts do what. Well, there's a certain little tiny spot in the temporal lobes where if you touch it, the person feels like they're floating out of their body. Like, I'm way up by the ceiling now. Uh, You know, now I'm halfway down or my left leg is floating, my right leg is floating. And uh it's fascinating you could do this with oxygen deprivation. This is dr james winnery's research uh with air force pilots where they 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 accelerate them in a centrifuge so they black out so they get to know what that feels like pulling high g 's in a jet and a lot of them have these floating out of the body experiences and as well the white light the the tunnel the white light at the end of the tunnel, which has to do with oxygen deprivation to the visual cortex in the back of your skull the back of your brain there is where you're your visual cortex is and as the oxygen shuts down there, uh the neurons you know, the neuron slowly quit quit firing and it kinda shrinks down uh in, in, a, in a sort of and this may happen either in the visual cortex or in the retina itself as the blood is shunted from the periphery of your of your skull to the center of your skull, which is what happens when you black out. Uh, you just lose blood. And uh and so that could it could create that kind of spiraling effect or tunnel effect, the white light at the end of the tunnel effect and so on. And uh, so, you know, much follows from that. That okay, that you know, there, you know, you could do it with hallucinogens and other ways, but you know, that's the you know the sort of the most common examples we have. So they're not veridical in the sense that you're going somewhere. And and if 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 you did, why are all these experiences different of what people see on the other side? I mean, what I just described is common to, to most NDEs and out of body experiences, but. What they see on the other side—I saw Jesus, or I saw Moses, or I saw Buddha, or I saw my loved ones—and the descriptions are, are different. Uh, you know, if it was a place you're going to, it, the descriptions should be similar, but they're not. So, if there is a place you go to, it, it has to be completely individualized, which is what maybe Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of, of God is within you. Uh, maybe he meant that literally. It's—it's just—it's just, it's just uh, all of this is just in our heads and nothing more. You, you know when
0: when you say that i guess I'm reminded of Stuart Hameroff. we had him on a show oh yeah uh, a couple times <laughs> so you're familiar with Hameroff's microtubule theories yeah, and yeah, yeah, so yeah. on um and and you know flesh out from your standpoint uh where you are with regard to his perspective of consciousness the quantum model the microtubule
2: well i i know, i don't place uh, much validity in that and neither do most neuroscientists um, it was an interesting speculative idea it's never really caught on um, I mean most professional neuroscientists who de- work in consciousness they don't accept it they they work on well there's, there's maybe half a dozen different competing theories to explain consciousness uh, you know global workspace uh, is one that's kind of the leading candidate now there's another one having to do with processing of information um, anyway, it's a, it's a kind of a long, complex uh, issue, but that particular one has not gained a lot of traction in neuroscience. Um, so,
0: I see the, more and more is, coming.
2: Is, Go ahead. That may, maybe, yeah, maybe. But the problem is we don't have a good theory for consciousness, so that kind of opens the door for anybody and everybody to throw in their um, throw their hat in the ring and, and give it a shot. Fine, that's how science works. But this is a harder problem, the so-called hard problem of consciousness. I just wrote about this for a forthcoming Scientific American column. That I I think it's misconceived. It's a conceptual error. This idea of consciousness—what it what it feels like to be somebody else, what it feels like to be a bat, like Thomas Nagel's famous essay, "What's it like to be a bat?" The only way to know is to say bolt on wings and the muscles that control the wings and the nervous system that runs the muscles and in a in a sonar system with big ears and and a thing that chirps and and then the brain tissue that processes the sonar um you know readings that come back from whatever it is you're trying to catch and so on at some point you you would have reconfigured your whole body and brain to such an extent you'd just be a bat you wouldn't be a human wondering what it's like to be a bat and the conceptual error here is that it's the idea that. You know, these philosophical head scratchers, like, is your red the same as my red? Um, you know, well, how would you know? Uh, the only way for me to find out would be to the little homunculus in my head leap into your head and look at the the, the screen to see what your red looks like. Well, that that isn't how brains work. I can't do that. Uh, it's a crazy idea. Uh, it's never going to happen. I can never know what it's like to be anything other than me. Uh, I can't know what it's like to be you or a bat or a dolphin or a dog you know, all we can do is imagine it if we, you know, do something like, uh, like, like if you are in a small room and and you, and you yell at the wall and you get a a reverberation back and you kind of have a feeling like the door's behind me, this is like a wall in front of me. That would be something like echolocation, like what a bat does, but not even remotely as uh, refined as what a bat does. So you can't really know what it's like to be a bat unless you are a bat. So the idea of you know, this hard problem of consciousness, we've got to keep working on it. I think it's a waste of time. It's it's, it's an ill-conceived wrong question or wrong problem to try to solve.
0: It's, this is a powerful book, and I want everybody to read the book. And we, have, we haven't been able to touch on most of what's in this book. We've just been skirting around the edge. But with the minute or so that we have left, I guess where I want to go next is the bottom line. If there isn't an afterlife, if there's no big guy in the sky, uh, if there isn't you know some higher purpose, if if consciousness uh, is not conserved somehow, and and the unimaginable, it just that's it. It's over. Dust to dust.
2: What's the meaning
0: of life? I mean, wh- how should we live?
2: Right. Well, that's the last chapter of heavens on earth, and and there I talk about. Um, trying to do things in your life that bring purpose and meaning not necessarily happiness and the research on this by cognitive psychologists and clinicians is is that this this push we've had for the last 20 years or so you know of positive psychology and happiness research has, has been slightly misdirected toward you know just sort of good happy feelings which is fine um but that isn't what gives people a meaningful life. It, often being challenged and doing difficult things that are not fun at all uh, is what makes people feel good. Uh, the examples I use in the book are from the mundane, like working out really hard. I'm a cyclist. So I like to ride really hard, go up long, hard mountains. It's not fun doing that. It's hard. But I feel better afterwards. Like, yes, this was good for my health. I, I feel better uh, you know, physically and so on all the way to something like taking care of my parents when, when they were alive. And I I was a caretaker for two of my four parents. I had step parents and this wasn't fun. Uh, it was exhausting, emotionally draining, uh, you know, going from doctor's office to doctor's office and hospitals and, and hospice care and, 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 and these nursing homes. And, oh, it was terrible, you know, but I did it because I felt like, well, I should do this. I would want somebody to do this for me. This person loved me. And, uh, you know, I feel good about myself doing it, but it's not fun. So I didn't um, want
0: to cut you off, Dr. Professor yeah, Schirmer, so but term, we're out of time.
2: Yeah, long-term uh, goals.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, the bottom line is uh, your life makes a difference to you when you're able to make a difference in somebody else's life. Uh, and that includes your own health. And I, maybe I put words in your mouth I didn't mean to. It is a great read. Heavens on Earth, The Scientific Search for the Afterlife, Immortality, and Utopia – I suggest you all go get a copy. I want to thank you, Professor Shermer, for your willingness to share uh, your book, your work, your ideas with us today. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters.